Canada was founded on the violent displacement and exploitation of Indigenous people. European settlers colonized the land and the people, and this was legislated through something called the Indian Act. The Indian Act had a few different motives, but among them was defining who was eligible for status and who was not, assimilating Indigenous people into Canadian society, and creating a gender divide that had massive implications for people of all genders. And this act isn't just a part of this country's violent colonial history. The Indian Act is still in effect, with many, many amendments. But its legacy is one of racialized violence, paternalism, forced assimilation, and sexism. You're listening to Taking Up Space on CFUV 101.9 FM on the Husainich and Songhees territories of the Senchothan and Lekwungen-speaking people, commonly known as Victoria. On this episode, we're going to go through the relationship between the Indian Act and the gender binary. We're going to look at how the Act destabilized communities by imposing gender-based legislation, and then what people did about it. And to take us through it, uh, bonjour, uh, Wasiasen Christine C. Indigenous. My name is Wasiasen Christine C. Professor C. teaches gender studies here at UVic. I'm from Boatine, Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, as well as Opishkakong, Laxul First Nation in northwestern Ontario. So, one of the biggest issues with the Indian Act is that it defines what an Indigenous person is, something that settlers who arrived on Turtle Island really had no right to do. I think it goes right from the late um, 18th century of even just creating a label of Indian um, and then defining Indian as man, a particular kind of man. And the definition was based on one's proximity to a status indigenous man, which was a problem for everybody. Because it centers indigenous men in a particular way. It it erodes indigenous men's humanity as they know it, in, in the diverse ways they know it. Um, it does something to Indigenous women, but it also erases all those other diverse gendered ways, gendered ways of being, which we might now call two-spirit or genderqueer or gender nonconforming. Two-spirit is a term used by Indigenous people to refer to a gender identity that is outside of a binary of man and woman. It was established as a term in the 90s, but two-spirit people have existed in Indigenous communities for generations. And so in that moment... Um, it does something to women. It, it doesn't remove status, so to speak, but it just restructures um, through an access of power who is more important, who is centered, who has power, who is made to be disappeared, and who is restructured in subject or in subjugating ways as less than. And so then through a series of amendments to the Indian Act, you have redefinitions and kind of a finessing of that definition and what it means. And women become uh, further defined as, uh, you know, only through their marital status to men and, and or as, you know, children of men. Imposing this hierarchy of gender had a huge structural impact that went far beyond Indigenous women losing their status which was something constructed by the government of Canada for the purposes of the Indian Act. By making, you know, Indian as a man and then subjugating women and erasing two-spirit people, we, we can, we, it's not even about losing status, it's about, you know, dehumanizing and really reshaping how we understand an Indigenous woman from a particular nation. This meant that the Indian Act was eroding people's sense of identity. 
So no longer is it about her name or her clan or her particular gifts or responsibilities. It's just about is she married to a man or not, an, in, an Indian or not. And so, then, and so then now in the contemporary context, we're really focused on these things like amendments and, and status and, and erosion of status and, and such. The Indian Act basically functioned to define who would and who would not be eligible for the rights and benefits that the Canadian government had created for Indigenous people. So the Indian Act is not only based on racist beliefs that Indigenous people were under the stewardship of European settlers, but its legitimacy relies on the supremacy of colonizers. But it's really hard for me to spend any great deal of time within a discussion around status and rights because the whole Indian Act itself is fundamentally wrong, mm-hmm. uh, morally wrong, and perhaps in some legal systems it's it's legitimate, but within Indigenous legal systems it would be completely illegitimate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how do I spend time taking serious ideas about status when its foundations and its roots are, are, are built on classist, racist, sexist ideas that were meant to serve a population of people that cares nothing about Indigenous people? The gender discrimination that was inherent within the Indian Act was only one of the human rights violations associated with it. And a lot of work has been done to address it by Indigenous women. And to me, um, I ha- those conversations are very hard for me to have. I really respect the work of the women from the 60s and 70s who have, and 80s and to today who have fought so hard to bring to light the gender discrimination in the Indian Act. Um, within a rights framework, human rights framework. I really respect that work. And all that work led to one of the landmark amendments of the Indian Act. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was those, you know, decades and decades of resistance and violence and pain and hurt and struggle and gathering and supporting each other and refusing to accept anything less than what they knew was right that allowed for eventually Bill C-31. But before we get to what Bill C-31 is all about, we're going to step back and explain more about the functions, motivations, and history of Canada's Indian Act. So, colonialism. On Turtle Island, colonialism refers to the arrival of European settlers and the process of gaining political power over the First Peoples, the exploitation of the land and people, and the imposition of settler worldviews onto Indigenous people. There were a couple of key pieces of legislation that predated the Indian Act, so we're going to start there. European settlers were trying to displace Indigenous people and force assimilation through their own colonial law. And that was manifested in in different different ways. One of those ways was through the, the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which evolved into different policies. The Gradual Civilization Act and the Gradual Enfranchisement Act. The Royal Proclamation Act of 1763 was issued by King George III, and its purpose was to officially claim territory for Britain on Turtle Island, after Britain won the Seven Years' War. And it's a meaningful document because it clearly states that Aboriginal title exists and that the land belongs to Indigenous people until it is ceded by a treaty. And it's stated that only the Crown can purchase land from Indigenous people, which can be sold to settlers. And these things were all meant to to control, to um, to contain, to assimilate Indigenous peoples. And the Royal Proclamation is is kind of actually framed as a way to protect Indigenous peoples and our lands from settler encroachment. But ultimately, Britain still held all the power and had a monopoly over the territory. 
the proclamation was created by British colonists and included no input from the indigenous people that it sought to protect. But in fact, the very the, the idea that one group of people can actually say, we're going to make a rule to protect you, really undermines indigenous people's ability to protect ourselves, which we've been doing for thousands of years, mm-hmm. and, and governing our own relations with other groups of people, right? Which we had been doing for thousands and thousands of years already. Inherent in this proclamation and in the Indian Act is this sense of paternalism. The Canadian government assumed responsibility for Indigenous peoples and set that into law without consent. So it's kind of arrogant and ethnocentric and, and, um, and colonial. And so you have these kind of these examples of rooted legislation and policies that, you know, evolved over over decades into, you know, the formation of Canada, the Constitution Act of 1867. And then a few years later, um, you know, the intensified and kind of more uh, unified goal of, of kind of nation building. You know, we need more land. We need to do something with the with these Indians. And then that proclamation evolved into two other important pieces of legislation. First, the Gradual Civilization Act, which attempted to assimilate Indigenous people into Canadian society. It created this process where men could apply to become citizens, provided they could read and write English and French, had no debt, and were of good moral character. He was then given some land to live on, but wouldn't be able to own it until he had proved he was capable of assimilating for one year. At that point, he could vote and was fully enfranchised. So that was in 1857, and it didn't work. People were not choosing to become citizens. So a few years later, in 1869, the Canadian government set in motion the Gradual Enfranchisement Act. This act was meant to be a more forceful hand in the assimilation process. It did this by replacing tribal governments with more colonial structures and restricting even further who was eligible for Indian status. Now, people had to be at least one quarter indigenous in their lineage. And this act is where the gender discrimination between indigenous men and women was officially enacted, which we'll get to later. And these two pieces of legislation were consolidated to create what we now know as the Indian Act. So the Indian Act, the first kind of formal manifestation of the Indian Act of 1876 was really the consolidation of two existing legislations, the Gradual Civilization Act and Gradual Enfranchisement Act. And if you go and read those things, they're they're horrendous. I mean, the the embedded arrogance and, as I said, ethnocentricity is, is... is abundant and it's astounding, actually. In 1876, less than a decade after the formation of Canada, the Canadian Parliament rolls out the Indian Act under the prime ministership of John A. Macdonald. The proposed purpose of this legislation was to solidify the relationship, i.e. repair the damage that had been done as a result of colonization to Indigenous communities a band-aid, really, to all the injustice, racism, and genocide that had been inflicted. But that wasn't the reality. The Indian Act was used as a tool to exert power over indigenous populations, but excluded Métis and Inuit people. 
Its purpose was to displace indigenous people from their territories and to assimilate all indigenous people into Canadian society. And as we've learned, create a structurally perpetuated gender divide. And one of the ways the Indian Act did this was to define what an indigenous person was in this very particular way. The Indian Act's definition of an Indian extended to any indigenous person that was a male, the wife of an indigenous male, or the child of an indigenous male. Paternal lineage was the key to qualifying. But there was a stipulation attached to paternal lineage, and it only applied to women. A daughter, through paternal lineage, could be granted status. That was, unless she married a non-indigenous man. This is the marrying out rule. So if an indigenous man marries a non-indigenous woman, she gets status along with their children. If an indigenous woman marries a non-indigenous man, she and her potential children all lose status. But if a woman wanted to divorce her status husband, she would lose her status. And the only way to regain it would be to remarry another man with status. And remember, this idea of status was something that was a complete construction created by the Canadian government. So what were the benefits of having status? And why did people want to have it? Status gave people, one, treaty rights, which related to how First Nation people traditionally used their land and gave people the right to use but not own their land. Two, health benefits. Three, the right to live on reserve. Four, the right to inherit family property. And five, the right to be buried on the reserve with their ancestors. You know, if you want to become a scholar of the Indian Act to find out how atrocious Canada is, you can find that out. So, the gender discrimination within the Indian Act, the loss of status for women who married settlers, and the requirement of the paternal lineage to pass on indigenous status, was based on the way that European settlers imposed the gender binary onto indigenous peoples through colonization. So, for instance, colonial influences didn't impact all indigenous peoples or nations in the same way at the same time. Mm-hmm. It was a very unstable, uneven, uh, dynamic and differential process across Turtle Island. In terms of a gender binary in general, I would say, speaking from within Nishnabe Nation, which is my nation, I would say that that um, greatly reduced how we understood each other, how we understood the world. Um, I suspect that there would have been much subverse, subversive efforts to <laughs> undermine it and just ignore missionary efforts to impose such a binary or uh, patriarchal efforts to impose such a binary. And then later in our contemporary history, the influences of the Indian Act. So the Indian Act relied on this construction of a gendered divide and the enforcement of gender roles. I think there would have been a lot of trying to ignore it, uh, undermine it, subvert it, but then eventually... um, that binary would have been greatly imposed through marriage, um, through the identity requirements in the Indian Act, and I think it was devastating. And Professor C said that the lack of a binaried idea of gender is evident in her language. 
I'm just, I'm a language learner, but what I've learned from our languages is that we had different words for understanding um, who we are in the world. We have different ways of, underst of understanding ourselves in the world, and we had different uh, words for understanding our living arrangements with each other and our relationality with each other, our kinship ties. And so when you have, when you move from this very rich, uh, sophisticated social structure that is conveyed through your own language that has been generated over thousands of years, and you go from that to a very flat, uh, myopic, kind of uh, restricted language of man and woman, he and her, who will only be married together and have two children, <laughs> uh, I think that becomes, um, yeah, I just think we, over time, we, we've lost a lot as Indigenous peoples in terms of our Anishinaabe people in terms of how we how we historically may have understood each other through our languages and how we would have lived our lives and uh, respected each other. And I, I want to just say um, gender, which is a very important uh, lens through which to understand the world, is not necessarily a priority for Indigenous peoples historically at different historical periods. The emphasis, rather, was on a person's skills and what they had to offer on a larger scale. And those were more important than biological sex. I think for Anishinaabe, uh, historically, we, we would have been much more interested in, you know, your responsibilities, your spiritual gifts, um, uh, what your responsibilities you had as a clan, um, kind of what your own callings were, what knowledge came to you through the spirit world or through elders. And so it would have had nothing to do with your biological... Uh, I mean, it would have had somewhat to do with your biological self but uh, but really the priority would be you know who are you as a spiritual being what is your gift what is your responsibility have you carried those out um, have you carried those out well and, and are you good at what you're supposed to be doing But communities of Indigenous people did not just accept the injustices and flagrantly racist ideology of the Indian Act. And I think probably um, started in the 60s, there was a kind of a global or kind of international movement, you know, a civil rights movement, um, Black Panther movement, labor movement, women's movement, Indigenous movement, Red Power movement as well. And so I think uh, at the nexus of gender and race and civil rights, I think in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, Indigenous women, um, we hear them, we hear mostly about Indigenous women from the East. Um, that's mostly documented, but I'm sure Indigenous women across Turtle Island or in, in what is now Canada would have been a, would have been engaged in some kind of consciousness and resistance around the violation of their rights on reserves, mm -hmm. as well as in cities. But we're talking mostly from those violation of rights on reserves because that's where the Indian Act governs, right? Mary Tuax Early was one of those women. In 1967, Mary got involved with the advocacy group Indian Rights for Indian Women and used the Royal Commission on Status of Women as a platform to address the gender discrimination in the Indian Act. Even though the commission recommended that Indigenous women be allowed to transmit their status to their children, regardless of their spouse, the change was not adopted by the government. Mary continued to advocate for Indigenous women and helped found the Quebec Native Women's Association in 1974. 
And so I think in the, you know, throughout the 70s and into the 80s, you had Indigenous women um, coming to consciousness, you know, mobilizing their sense of injustice, they, what they knew was wrong. Jeanette Corbier-Lavelle and Yvonne Bettard were also important players in the fight for Indigenous women's rights. After losing their status after marrying non-Indigenous men, they both filed suits against the federal government for violating the 1960 Canadian Bill of Rights. And Lavelle actually won her case on appeal in 1971, but it was overturned in a very controversial move by the Supreme Court in 73. That as Indigenous women, they had every right to live in their home, reservation, reserve. They had every right to, to have a home, to be buried there, to have all the rights that they felt that they're, you know, that men enjoyed, that they had the right to um, pass on who they were to their children. And all along the way, they were dismissed by the Canadian government, but also by what was then called the National Indian Brotherhood for fighting against the Indian Act. They were met with resistance. And, you know, surely they had allies within their own communities with, with their relatives who are in positions of power, their male relatives. But they were also met with lots of resistance, both from, from settler men in government and also men in their own communities. And so women always, Indigenous women always had to find new, new groups, new people, new ways to kind of bring light and, and get the spotlight on, their, on these issues. And then another court case about the same thing, filed by Sandra Lovelace. All these cases brought a lot of international attention to Canada's obvious human rights violations, so it was the tireless work of these women that ultimately led to amendments to the Constitution Act in 1983, which ensured that men and women would have equal access to Aboriginal and treaty rights. Mm -hmm. And so there's this consciousness and there's this organization and mobilization and engagement, not with just in their own local communities, their own local uh, family systems and communities, but also across communities and even into international scenes, raising awareness. Because at every turn, Indigenous women were trying to advance their, their rights through um, bringing to light their discrimination in the Indian Act. And this led to the amendment of the Indian Act in 1985 that addressed the gender discrimination and threw out the marrying out rule. It was called Bill C-31, but... So that so that was not the First Amendment. <laughs> There's been many, many amendments of okay. the Indian Act, yeah. So, I mean, who, who can keep up, really? There's amendment after amendment, and uh, it's actually mind-boggling when you read it that, you know, uh, Indigenous peoples was, you know, amendments such as you cannot gather, you cannot hire lawyers, you cannot make land claims, you cannot dance, mm -hmm. you cannot dance on reserve, our offers, all these amendments. Yeah. And then the amendments to kind of change them. <laughs> but back to Bill C-31. It was a huge deal. After decades of activism, issues with gender discrimination in the Indian Act were finally being addressed. As for how effective it was, it was a step in the right direction, but it still had some major issues. The first issue was that Bill C-31 created a process where Indigenous women who qualified under all the government's specifications could apply for status themselves, which on paper might sound like it worked, but the problem was, there was now a huge influx of women trying to claim status, which completely overwhelmed what was then called the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs. And this meant that the wait times for applicants was extremely long. And not only that, 
a lot of people couldn't get to the offices of the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs because they lived rurally and the cost of travel was too expensive. The next big issue was that Indian status was a totally different thing than band membership. So women who got their status reinstated after the passing of Bill C-31 could still have their membership to a band taken away, which basically meant that their eligibility for some rights and benefits was still restricted. And there was another thing. It was called the second generation cutoff. So in cases where status was granted to women who had lost it prior to 1985, they could pass on status to their children, but not their grandchildren. This was not the case with indigenous men. So there was still not a sense of equality. I think when there's ever any kind of legislative changes um, or policy changes, it takes a very long time to actually unpack them and to implement them. And often those implementations are ineffective. Um, and if and if there isn't pockets of money set aside for the implementation of new policy, you know, when you change policy, it, it always comes at a cost. And if there isn't enough funding, enough um, if you don't have the right people at the table to help figure out how to, to make sure the policy is implemented properly, then you're not going to get it right. And I, and I suspect that in many cases, um, more now we have Indigenous women at the table being able to share their, their brilliance and their insight and their lived experience. But I think historically it wasn't always the way. You had non-Indigenous people making these changes, deciding how it was going to be implemented, and of course it's going to miss the mark. Non-Indigenous people don't live the lives that Indigenous women do, or Two-Spirit folks do. And so how could they know what the needs would be? And just to remind you, the entire idea of status was something created by the government and imposed on Indigenous communities in a move that was hugely paternalistic. So these stipulations come off as pretty arbitrary and unnecessarily harmful to Indigenous people. After the break, we find out how some of those issues get addressed. Up until this point, Indigenous women could not pass along their status to their grandchildren, while Indigenous men could. Sharon McIver took the government of Canada to court, saying that the Section 6 of the Indian Act, the one that says women can't transmit status to their children, violates Section 15 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which says gender equality is a human right. In 2010, a decision was reached over the McIver versus Canada case. They won, and the government had to make changes to the act within one year. So in 2011, 26 years after the changes made in Bill C-31, Bill C-3 sought to change the gender discrimination. Bill C-3 granted status to the grandchildren of women who had gotten status in 1985. But not all the grandchildren. There was another huge issue with this bill as well. Well, I mean, I, I can't pretend to know what the intent of the House folks who animate the House of Commons are. But mm -hmm. I, again, looking through this through the lens of a colonial lens, that the, you know, the House of Commons is rooted in a broader political structure and, and uh, sentiment of itself that it's, uh, it has a right to govern 
Indigenous peoples, uh, as it does through the Indian Act and other forms. Um, and so obviously it has some rationale to say there's a cutoff. If, if um, it also protects them from, from um, having to delve out more resources. <laughs> Uh, so it always boils in a kind of a global <laughs> uh, nation-state capitalist economy. Everything boils down to to money or to power, to wealth generation. And if it's if it's going to infringe on a kind of a budget, um, if it's going to cost too much money, you can be sure that you know doors are not going to be opened mm -hmm. for Indigenous peoples. And that issue was the 1951 cutoff. In order to maintain a colonial relationship with Indigenous peoples, that being a power over relationship, you, you have to maintain rules of who's in, who's out, who gets rights, who doesn't. And, and that always always attached to money. And what the 1951 cutoff refers to is one of the requirements that had to be met for all those grandchildren trying to get status. Basically, for people with a mother who lost status from marrying a non-Indigenous man, they had to be born after September 4, 1951, to be eligible for status. If they, if they were to expand it beyond 1951, then that would mean a lot more people could, could have what they call a status and be, you know, receive health benefits, access to different resources on reserve, educational resources, and mm -hmm. on and on. There were all kinds of confusing stipulations and huge problems with this. For example... Helen has two children, Sherry and Tina, and each of them have three children. Sherry's children were all born before September 4, 1951. But Tina's children were born both before and after September 1951. Tina's children would all be eligible for status under Bill C-3, because at least one of them was born after the cutoff date. But Sherry's children are not. All the grandchildren have the same indigenous lineage, but have different entitlements because of this rule. Then in 2011, there was the Deschanel case, which ultimately led to Bill S-3 in 2017. Three women from the Abenakis of Odenak First Nation in Quebec, Stephanie Deschanel, Susan Yantha, and Tammy Yantha, filed a suit with the Superior Court of Quebec, saying that the provisions under Section 6 were unconstitutional because they were still discriminatory against women. After they won, the government responded with Bill S-3, which addressed three issues. And before I explain them, I need to explain the two categories of status in Section 6 of the Indian Act. There is 6-1 and 6-2. The main difference is that a person with 6-1 status can have a child with a non-Indigenous person, and their descendants will have 6-2 status. But if a person with 6-2 status has a child with a non-Indigenous person, their descendants are not eligible for status. To confuse things, two people with 6-2 status can have children with 6-1 status. 
So really the 6-2 category is about the ability to pass on status when there is mixed parentage. So here are the three issues that Bill S3 sought to fix. One, the cousins issue. This was the issue affecting Stephanie Deschanel. She is the grandchild of a woman who lost status for marrying a non-Indigenous man, which was reinstated under Bill C-31. Stephanie's mother acquired 6-2 status under Bill C-31, which was then changed to 6-1 status under Bill C-3 in 2011. Stephanie also got 6-2 status in 2011, but Stephanie's daughter the great-grandchild of the woman who lost status for marrying out and had it reinstated in 85, is not eligible for status. And if you follow this same pattern on the paternal line, the great-grandchildren all still have status because men can't lose their status for marrying out. Two, siblings issue. This was the issue affecting Susan and Tammy Yantha. Susan is the child of an indigenous father and non-indigenous mother who were not married before 1985, so she received 6-2 status. Her daughter, Tammy, was not eligible for status. If Susan had been a male, Tammy would be eligible. And three. Issue of omitted minors. This issue addresses minor children who had indigenous parents or an indigenous mother but lost their entitlement to status because their mother married a non-status or non-indigenous person after they were born, but had it reinstated under Bill C-31. The descendants of that child would have 6-2 status, jeopardizing their ability to pass on status to their children. Whereas, if the same situation happened, but the father had married a non-indigenous woman, there would be no impact on the status of the children, or their ability to pass on status. Basically, every time there's a new amendment meant to fix earlier discrimination and inequality in the Indian Act, it is made worse by leaving out other groups of people. And the situation becomes so complicated, it's hard to even wrap your mind around it. But this is where we are now with Bill S3, which has been law as of 2017. So where do we go from here? How can we imagine a post-Indian Act future that does away with the idea that settlers or members of the government of Canada have jurisdiction over the identities and rights of indigenous peoples of Turtle Island? But I, I do want to say this, I am aware of um, a document, and I haven't read it, but I, I have heard it referenced time and time again, especially of late, a document that was uh, co-authored by uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, who was the former um, Attorney General of Canada, Minister of Justice, and um, she's a member of the Liberal Party. She's, um, she's from the island, she's from the North Island, Kwakwakiwak Nation. It was co-authored between her and Tim Raybould. It's called BCAFN Governance Toolkit, A Guide to Nation Building. And it starts with the premise of First Nations uh, governance, so that being chief and council, like reserve governance. It starts with the premise that that reserve governance, you know, 
it exists under the Indian Act, which is a problem. And so this, I guess this document is over 800 pages long, a toolkit, and they, and it's very precise and there's, and there's great detail about how to, um, in, how to get to a place of kind of this post-Indian Act future. The document is split into three sections, the governance report, the governance self-assessment, and the guide to community engagement. And it methodically details how a First Nations group could establish self-government and conduct community consultations for making real change. This document is the first of its kind to create such a comprehensive roadmap that sees a way for Indigenous people to get out from under the Indian Act. One of the things, I, and I don't know if they talk about this in this toolkit or not, but even in our own conversation, when we're talking about the Indian Act and status, we're only talking about a certain group of Indigenous peoples. It doesn't talk about Métis peoples or Inuit people. And it doesn't talk, obviously, about non-status folks. So there's a whole lot of Indigenous peoples in Turtle Island or in the Canada part of Turtle Island that we're missing in this dialogue when we're just talking about the Indian Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, to my, my point in saying that is that I guess, I guess a post-Indian Act future would be would take for account the diverse indigeneities that exist in Turtle Island in, in Canada, and maybe would even disrupt the international border as well. The history of genocide, gender discrimination, and racist legislation in Canada is not just something that lives in the past. The report on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls just came out this year, in 2019. And as we know, the last amendments to gender discrimination in the Indian Act were made in 2017. Colonialism is ongoing, and it's something that all Canadians need to reckon with. I get actually kind of annoyed with with the whole idea that people have around Canada being this this great country. Um, um, and yet, I understand why people have that. Because, they again, people have been educated that way, uh, been socialized to believe that. But people, even when faced with the truth, still want to believe that. And what I, I think is most helpful is because this, this, this commitment or this desire to, to say I'm part of this wonderful country really prevents growth, prevents change, um, prevents people from being able to accept the history and the contemporary reality of the state and, and kind of what it's doing in its relationship with Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And so I think what really what is really helpful is that for... Um, is to think of, so if this is your idea of Canada, and then when faced with the truth, then the work then becomes, how do we recover from this truth and make it right and not make those mistakes again so that we can be, so that people can be be the Canada they want to be? Mm-hmm. And, you know, for myself as, as a Canadian, I, I consider myself as Anishinaabe, but I also consider myself as Canadian in the sense that I have a passport that allows me to travel. Um, but I'm Nishnabe, and that's my nation. And yes, my dad is Canadian, and I and I have my birth certificate and all my documentation. I'm a Canadian citizen, but I that was all imposed. You know, that was none of those things were ever made in consultation with Indigenous peoples. We never gave up our right to our sovereignty, to our own citizenship, to our own nationhood, our own personhood. So I'm Nishinaabe. My daughter's Nishinaabe. Um, but in terms of moving through the world safely, uh, yeah, I'm Canadian. <laughs> safely, with quotation marks. Um, so I, I just think um, 
there's a lot of emotions wrapped up in this idea of Canada and patriotism and, and nationhood and nationality. And um, people need, I think it would be, I think it would be wonderful to have more and more people grapple with the fact that there's a, the wonderful thing they think Canada is, is not. And yet there's, there are many wonderful things I'm sure that are true, uh, it, particularly in comparison to other countries. Um, but I don't think those things should stop us from doing the hard work of, of really listening to Indigenous, what shouldn't be hard work to listen to Indigenous peoples, but what apparently may be the hard work of listening to Indigenous peoples, particularly Indigenous women and or two-spirit folks and our transgendered folks. It has seemingly become hard work for mainstream Canadian society to listen to Indigenous communities, which is due to institutionalized racism and white supremacy. Indigenous resurgence, land and water protection initiatives, and decolonizing methodology are all opportunities to conceptualize taking guidance from Indigenous communities as a privilege rather than a burden. You know, these are our lands. We've been developing our knowledges and our ways of being in the world for thousands of years. When foreign folks arrived, things were good. Like the land was fine, the water was clean, the fish were flourishing. Yeah. Um, we were living our lives, and so I think we have a lot. To, we have we have a lot of uh, expertise, and we ought to be regarded as authorities on how to live in our lands. This episode was produced by Sarah Sulman, with help from Erissa Apentaku, Katie Sage, and Hank Dutton. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. Thank you to Christine C. for speaking with us. This program would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, give me your ear. Let's uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFUV's podcasts. My name is Peter Underwood, and I've volunteered with Wheel New Radio. I've learned a lot about recording and interviewing. I actually had the pleasure of interviewing a lot of people I really look up to while working on a podcast on Indigenous food sovereignty. The great thing was that I got to learn a lot about the land and how to how to work in food sovereignty and what that really means and the resurgence of being connected to the land. 
what made me want to volunteer was hearing all of the good podcasts that other people have done, especially those by Indigenous people. And I just feel like it'd be so cool to see so many more Indigenous podcasts out there and more Indigenous media in general. And I feel like podcasts are a great way to start in media production. It's uh, It's been really approachable and I had some really good training here at CFUV. So I definitely recommend anyone to at least sign up to be a volunteer. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like an upcoming episode of Full Circle about how new immigrants and settlers fit into the continuum of colonization called Where We Fit.